Okay, so uh, let us carry on where we left off uh, this morning. Yeah. And uh, the next sutta we're going to have a look at is another sutta. Is it actually the next one in the sequence? So page 17 or something, I think it is. Uh, and uh, this one is called the Eight on Malice. And uh, all of these suttas are taken from the same chapter uh, in the Sutta Nipata, the Atakavagala chapter on Eights. And it's full of some of these ancient poems uh, and poetry. So it's kind of, it's really nice to, to look at these things. It's a bit different from what we often do on these retreats, just to add a bit of extra spice to these things. Uh, and these are fairly fresh, fresh translations by Bhante Sujato. So for that reason, it's kind of nice to have a look at them. Uh, and uh, so uh, let's have a look at these eight on malice and see what uh, the Buddha has to say here. So I'll read through it, and then we'll kind of go through it in a little bit of detail and see what comes out of it. So this is what the Buddha says. Some speak with malicious intent, while others speak set on truth. When disputes come up, a sage does not get involved, which is why they have no barrenness at all. How can you transcend your own view when you are led by preference, dogmatic in belief. Inventing your own undertakings, uh, you would speak according to your own notions. Some unasked tell others uh, of their own precepts and vows. Uh, they have an ignoble nature, say the experts, uh, since they speak about themselves of their own accord. A mendicant, peaceful, quenched, uh, never boast, thus am I, of their precepts. They have a noble nature, say the experts, uh, not proud of anything in the world. Uh, for one who formulates and creates teachings uh, and promotes them despite their defects, uh, if they see an advantage for themselves, uh, they become dependent on that, uh, relying on an unstable peace. It is not easy to get over dogmatic views uh, adopted after judging among the teachings, uh, that is why, among all the dogmas, uh, a person rejects one teaching uh, and takes up another. Uh, the cleansed one has no formulated view uh, at all in the world about the different realms, uh, having given up illusion and conceit. Uh, by what path would they go? They are not involved. For one who is involved gets embroiled in disputes about teachings. Uh, and how, but how to dispute with the uninvolved? About what? For picking up and putting down is not what they do. They have shaken off all views in this very life. So this is a lot about views, really, and um, which is an interesting topic in Buddhism, views, because uh, this is something you of, we often argue about, views about things. So it's kind of fascinating to have a look at this in a little bit more depth. Uh, and again, it's about outlook and how to think about things, right effort, and all of these kind of things that we are really dealing with here. Uh, so uh, some speak with malicious intent, uh, others speak set on truth. Yeah, this is kind of the beginning of this verse. Uh, and um, yes, that's kind of obvious, I, I suppose. Uh, and uh, speaking set on truth means that you are on this kind of journey of discovery, I suppose, uh, trying to understand the world, trying to understand things. And of course, it is uh, 
if you're trying to understand things, then it's good to have a sense of uh, not having opinions that are too strong, being a little bit humble about your own insight and understanding. Otherwise, you're not really going to get anywhere. Uh, so a humble person, one who is not malicious, you don't speak for some kind of uh, uh, ulterior motive, uh, but you speak simply because you want to move forward, you want to achieve something positive, see things as they actually are. Uh, when disputes come up, the sage does not get involved, uh, which is why they have no barrenness at all. Uh, the sage never disputes with anyone in the world. Uh, That's one of the things the Buddha says, Elsewhere in the sutta, he says, I don't dispute with anyone in the world. Other people might dispute with me, but I don't dispute with anyone. And this is uh, kind of the nice thing about a Buddha, is that they know the truth. They have no need to dispute. They don't argue to prove a point. They don't argue to prove that they are, you know, to win a debate or anything like that. If they, come, if they enter a discussion, it is merely to point out the truth. It is merely to you know, to do something positive, but they never go as far as falling into an argument. This is kind of, kind of nice. Yeah, there's, nothing, there's no need to prove anything anymore when you get to that point. That is what it means to be a sage in Buddhism, seeing things as they actually are, knowing the truth for themselves, being independent, and therefore never falling into arguments. And because of that, they have no barrenness. And the idea of barrenness here is the idea that there is no fruit. Yeah? A barren field is a fruit that doesn't produce any crop. And so there's barrenness of the mind, means that there is no result from your practice. You don't go anywhere. You kind of stop from progressing. So a lot of these qualities of mind that we have, and one of them is this idea here of arguing with others, proving yourself. It makes the mind hard. It makes the mind not gentle and soft. It produces qualities that stop you from moving forward on the path. You become like a barren spiritual person, uh, not producing any results in your practice. Uh, so uh, disputing yeah, is not really the way forward. Uh, now there is a sutta, what is it, in the Majjhima Nikaya, which talks about uh, this idea of barrenness in greater detail. Chetokila Sutta, Majjhima 16, I think it is, Ooh, 16, 15 or 16, I think it's 16. Uh, um, and that expands that in greater, greater detail. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you don't get involved yeah, uh, in arguments and things. You're kind of slightly aloof, standing above everything, and not aloof in a bad sense of the word, but in a good sense of that word. Uh. How can you transcend your own view uh, when you are led by preference, uh, dogmatic in belief? Yeah, you're led by preference. You have a, you kind of have ideas of what you prefer. You're not really searching for the truth, but you have a kind of a decided on a preference. You are dogmatic in belief. A lot of religion has a very bad name because it is dogmatic. It is not so much about discovering truth, but about having the truth already. The truth is served to you on the plate, and then you hold on to that. You grasp onto that because that gives you a sense of uh, identity, maybe. Yeah? It gives you a sense of relief that you have found the truth. You don't have to search any further. Yeah? The Buddhist path is much more demanding because the Buddhist path actually acknowledges that we don't know necessarily. Yeah? The Buddhist path acknowledges that it is a movement towards truth. Yeah? And you only find that truth towards the very end. Yeah? 
in the meantime, okay, yes, you may be a Buddhist, uh, you may have a sense of uh, conviction that the Buddha told the truth, uh, but you try not to be dogmatic in that sense. Uh, you try to be more open-minded, realizing that you don't really know properly. Uh, yeah, there's a difference between knowledge and confidence. It is not the same thing. And we acknowledge that difference in Buddhism. And then you avoid being dogmatic. You avoid, you kind of have a continuous movement towards uh, uh, the truth on the path. So how can you transcend your own views? If you're dogmatic, you can't really go beyond them. You need to be more stand back and accept your own uncertainty. And that can be difficult to be uncertain. Yeah, it can be difficult to kind of not know her. But uh, in the end, it is the, uh, the best way to her. Uh, the sense of self kind of screams out, doesn't want to not know. But in the long term, long run, it's going to be beneficial for you. Uh, inventing your own undertakings. This is like inventing your own sammatani, the Pali, your own certainties, if you like, or your own views. Uh, you speak according to those views. You kind of make it all up, and then you speak according to it. That's kind of how it, <laughs> how it works sometimes. And um, then it goes on. It says, some unasked tells other of their own precepts and vows. They have an unignoble nature, said the experts. The experts here are the people who are kusala. Kusala means like wholesome or good. Yeah, this is the what has been translated here as expert, they are ignoble since they speak about themselves of their own accord. Yeah, I keep the five precepts. How many do you keep? I keep the eight. Ha ha ha. Da 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 da. da. Uh, <coughs> I am better than you. So this is kind of you know there's kind of this uh, competition about who is the better spiritual practitioner. But uh, the people who are really impressive in the world, and I'm sure you would agree, other people who just do things because they know it's right. There's no need to kind of say that you have done anything. There's no need to say about, you know, how much you have, how generous you are, or how kind you are, or how many precepts you keep, or, or anything good. You just are good because you know it feels right. And there's something about talking about these things which kind of makes them more dirty. Yeah, it makes them, it, you besmirch, to use this ancient English word, you kind of besmirch them and make them muddy and ugly by talking about these things. Some of the purity is kind of gone when you talk about these things. So you need to be careful because it's almost as if you imbue a sense of self into those good qualities you have. And the moment you do that, the moment you grasp onto these things as your identity or whatever, at that moment, it becomes kind of slightly dirty. It doesn't have the same power anymore. So the really powerful virtue is the virtue that you just do it because you know it is good. You know it is pure. And then as you practice it, it actually has a very powerful effect. Sometimes we have these Buddhist books that are published based on donations. Now at the last page, we have all the people who have donated. Yeah so-and-so donated so-and-so much, and exactly how much they donated as well. And it lists, the top one is the one who gave the most, yeah? The bottom one is the one who gave the least. Yeah, okay, we put them in there, but they're a bit on the, little bit stingy compared to the top one. Yeah. That's kind of the feeling you get, yeah, when you see those pages. But it's not the ideal way. Why do people want to have those things in there? And uh, one reason is because we know that people want to be seen in this way. So we, we kind of, we get more donations if we print the names in the back. Yeah. So sometimes it's just a trick to get more donations if you put those things in there. 
but it's not really nice. Yeah, it feels that something feels not quite right about it, this, this way of doing things. Uh, it's better to be anonymous about these things uh, because that purity you have then is actually far more powerful, far more conducive on the path uh, than the kind of bragging rights that you have because you have done something, something nice. Uh, so we need to be careful on this path, yeah, to, to kind of purify these things as uh, much as we can. And anyway, who are the people in the world who are really admirable? Who do you admire in the world? Is it the people who brag about the precepts? Or is it the people who just quietly go about living in the right way? And you see them, you can, you know, the person who is sharp will see it anyway, that you are a good person. You don't need to brag about it. And then when they see it, actually it's far more inspiring. That's what's really inspiring. The people who just go about their business quietly, yeah, the arahant who sits at the back corner of the room <laughs> somewhere, yeah, who is kind of invisible to everyone else. That arahant is very impressive. I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit. There's not that many arahants sitting in the corner, but occasionally you get arahants sitting in the corner, right? <laughs> so this is how, how it goes. And there's something very beautiful about that. So, um, you know, I, I've told this before. There's a story in one of Ajahn Brahm's books about, uh, you know, when he went, went to visit Ajahn Tate. That's a very beautiful story because that's just kind of, that's kind of the arahant in the corner of the room. And that's not the elephant in the corner of the room, but the arahant in the corner of the room. And um, Ajahn Brahm tells the story. He goes to see this very famous monk called Lumputet, Ajahn Tate. And he comes to his monastery and he comes to this massive hall. It's built by the king of Thailand because he was such a famous monk. But he wasn't just famous for the wrong reason. He was actually famous for all the right reasons. Yeah, he was a really exceptional monk. So Ajahn Brahm goes, yeah, I'm going to ask this monk all these questions. So he comes to this room and he opens the door. He's told Ajahn Tate is sitting in this hall. So he opens and looks into the hall. Oh, he doesn't see anyone just about to go out. And then, wait a minute, there was somebody there, wasn't there? And he goes in again. And sure enough, in the corner of the room, sitting on a chair, that's Ajahn Tate. Yeah? And ready to receive visitors if they want to come. But he didn't see him. And of course, the reason why you don't see him is because someone who is an arahant, who's given up all sense of self, they don't kind of prove themselves. They don't take up any space in the room. It's the people with the egos, with the sense of self, that take up space because they say, here I am, right? This is kind of what we, I am here, I exist. And you kind of make something out of yourself because of the sense of self. But when the sense of self is gone, it's like you disappear. You kind of merge with the furniture or with the, with the walls. Yeah, you, you, can, you can barely see people anymore. So you have to look twice. Oh, wait a minute. There's someone sitting in the corner over there. That must be Ajahn Tate. And then he goes in and he kind of bows down. And then he doesn't know what to say anymore because his mind just goes quiet. Yeah, because what are you going to ask? You come into the presence of someone, someone who's fully accepting here someone who just exudes peace, and you become peaceful too. And you don't want to ask any questions anymore. This is kind of this beautiful encounter, yeah? And uh, arahants are very, perhaps quite different from what we think they might be. There's no bragging there at all. It's just this beautiful presence that you find. So the alternative then is the mendicant who is peaceful and quenched, yeah? Abhinibhutato. Wow, that's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, <clears throat> and this is kind of having attained Nibbana, yeah? And uh, they never boast, thus am I, of their precepts. They have a noble nature, said the experts. 
not proud of anything in the world. For one who formulates and creates teachings and promotes them despite their defects, if they see an advantage for themselves, they become dependent on that, relying on an unstable peace. Yeah, these are the people who kind of are spiritual leaders. Yeah, you formulate a teaching, you create a teaching that kind of seems about right. Yeah, put it all together and kind of make up some random stuff. And there's lots of, uh, lots of teachers in the ancient suttas actually kind of seem to be of this kind. Yeah? Some of these uh, teachings in the suttas are really fabulous and really kind of amazing. And, uh, you know, the 40,000 of that and 14,000 of this and the 10,000 knots and the 2,000 levels of beings and the 7,000 ascetics. And it kind of goes on with this enormous list of things. Uh, and it's kind of all very amazing and marvelous. They create this kind of fairy tale fantasy world of the imagination. And then they present it to the world here. Believe in this. Uh, yeah. And people say, wow, that's impressive. It must be true. <laughs> And it's often like that. It sounds very impressive. And you can come up with a philosophical system which sounds very impressive and people buy into it. Yeah? But actually, in your heart, you doubt it yourself. You're not really sure yourself that you got it right. Uh, but because your ego is invested in this theory, uh, your ego kind of is part of this. You present it to others. Others believe it. Uh, well, you have to prove that you also believe it yeah? if you present it. Uh, so you cling on to this idea and you make excuses for why maybe it doesn't work out properly. And then sometimes other people come and contradict it. And you feel nervous because you know you are on shaky grounds. Yeah, because you are on shaky grounds, you're relying on an unstable peace because you are dependent on something which is uncertain and not solid, which you haven't really realized for yourself. These are the teachings in the world, people who don't really know. And the vast majority of teachings are a bit like this, unfortunately. I'm not going to name any examples because uh, it may not be appropriate to so we'll leave that out. But um, so um, it is not easy to get over the dogmatic views after adopted after judging among teachings. Yeah, you kind of uh, look at the various teachings in the world and then you see God, creator God. Yay, creator God, hooray. Wonderful, the creator God will look after me, 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 because I'm so important. The creator God will make sure that I am okay. I will just pray, and when I pray to the God, God will say, okay, I will look after you specifically. <laughs> the fact that this God has seven billion other people to look after, that never occurs to you, because, of course, each one of us, we feel very important, yeah? So God will surely look after us. So that's kind of how we think about these things. So we judge among these teachings, and then we... Uh, adopt them, yeah, and it's very natural for us to adopt a view like a creator God because it is just an extension of our own sense of self. So it kind of makes sense. Well, I exist, yeah, here I am, I have a you know, the self right here, that's what it feels like, and then we project that idea onto the universe at large. This is kind of classic way things are, and it's very obvious in some of the ancient Indian teachings whereby the self and the universe is the same behind the kind of masquerading changes in the universe behind the galaxies or whatever. Brahma is always there, steady as a mountain peak, not changing, solid, yeah? And we within us are the same. And this is how we tend to see the world. So it affirms our own existence, yeah, at the same time as it feels very comforting because there is something in the universe looking after you. 
That's kind of nice, but we have to be careful. What if it's wrong? What if it isn't correct? The idea that we should somehow be able to see a permanent essence in the universe, it's already deluded. It's impossible to know that. The moment you say that there is a permanent creator God, you have gone beyond the evidence. This is something you can never actually experience because all experiences are impermanent. So how can you know something is permanent? It's impossible to know that. So we know, you can know from the outset that the idea of a permanent creator God is a human-made idea. Yeah, it cannot really be experienced. So straight away, you should have a little bit of doubts about these things. And this is the problem with these ideas, is that they may sound good, they may feel good to us, but are they based on reality? And if they're not based on reality, then down the track, you probably will come to regret it. Yeah, because it, will, it doesn't have the safety, it doesn't have the refuge that you think these things might give you. And of course, that is really problematic. If you rely on something that doesn't exist, you have a problem, regardless of how nice it may seem at the outset. So it's important to investigate, important not to hold on, not to grasp these things too strongly. But of course, once you have grasped the idea of a creator God, it's hard to let go. Difficult to go beyond that. So that's why, among all those dogmas, a person rejects one teaching and takes up another. Yeah, you kind of you 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 go around and sometimes maybe you kind of go from one creator god to another one. Perhaps I don't know. Uh, the cleansed one has no formulated or does not formulate a view at all in the world about the different realms. No need to formulate views. You have seen the truth. You know what that you know what your views are. You don't kind of go around making up stuff. Having given up illusion and conceit, uh, by what path would they go? They are not involved. They don't take a path in the sense of creating views. They don't go anywhere. They have uh, kind of finished with going. They have already achieved what is to be achieved. And you are not involved with the world in that sense. You have a view, but you're not involved in the world. The one who is involved, gets embroiled in disputes about teachings. But how to dispute with the uninvolved? About what? It is only people who are involved, who have a sense of ownership of the doctrines, who identify with teachings. The people who say, you know, when you come to someone and you want to argue about rebirth, and someone says, ah, rebirth is just a superstition, and then you get angry and upset because they say that, well, then you are involved, yeah, because you have bested some of your sense of self in that idea of rebirth. And when someone argues against you, you feel challenged. Your very sense of identity is challenged. And this is the problem. So if someone wants to argue about rebirth, just shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, whatever, you know, doesn't matter. I'm not really going to get involved in that argument. And uh, the, uh, the point here is not so much that, you know, you, you realize that you don't know, first of all, whether there's rebirth. Yeah, and that's good to acknowledge that. Uh, yes, you may have faith in the teaching of the Buddha, but you don't actually know it for yourself. Uh, and then when someone challenges it, you can say, okay, don't really know, so that's fine. Uh, and that doesn't mean, though, that you take on board the view of the other person. This is kind of the important point here. Uh, just because I do not know does not mean I don't have a preferred view. Uh, if some other person says, yeah, rebirth is just rubbish, uh, it doesn't mean you say, yeah, maybe you have a point. What it means is that, well, actually, 
what do you know? <laughs> yeah, they don't know anything more than you do, probably no less, yeah? Especially if they have no kind of spiritual insight or spiritual leanings or whatever. Most people don't really know that much about the world. So it doesn't mean that you change your view, it just means that you accept the limits of your own understanding. And that's always, always very useful. So they are uninvolved, yeah, because they don't hold on to their views. They don't hold on to the views because they know what the truth is. Picking up and putting down is not what they do. Yeah, you don't pick up views and put things down. You're finished with that because you know the truth, and that's good enough. They have shaken off all views in this very life. What does that mean? Shaken all of views in this very life. It's very important to understand this in the right way because that may sound as if the noble ones don't have any views. Yeah, I don't really have any views at all. But that would be a misunderstanding yeah, because we know that the Buddha obviously had views. He taught rebirth. He didn't teach non-rebirth. He taught about suffering in the world. He taught about dependent origination. He taught about causality. He taught about a large number of things that made it very clear that there was views. He taught about right view and wrong view, right? All of these things are found in the suttas. So obviously he had a view. Not only did he have a view, but the Buddha says that when you become a stream-enter, you become dittipato, you become attained to view. In other words, you know what is true, yeah? You have attained these things. So it doesn't mean you don't have any views. And this is a very important point to make because it's also another very common misunderstanding in the Buddhist world that you don't have a view. You're giving up all views. And no, you have view. But uh, you don't hold on to that view. And that is what it means to give things up. In the suttas, you always talk about, when you talk about giving things up, it means giving up attachment and craving for those things. And that's why it can be said that you give up the five khandhas in this very life. Yeah? You still, the five khandhas are still here. You still perceive the world. You still will in the world. You still experience the world. But you're not attached to those five khandhas. That is the difference. So giving up something in Buddhism always means giving up attachment to those things, not actually getting rid of the thing itself. And that is a very important distinction. So this is what this last verse means. Yeah? You don't have any attachment. You don't need to attach to them because you know the truth and you can just allow things to be. And then, of course, you are uninvolved. And uh, regardless of what challenge you get in the world, it doesn't really matter because you know the truth of what you have discovered. Uh, and that is kind of the end of the Buddhist, uh, very end of the Buddhist path. Uh, you have shaken off all views in this very life. Uh, don't pick up anything, don't put anything down. Uh. So that is a little sutta about views for you, how to deal with views, how to be wise about views, and how to understand this correctly. Uh, when we chant the Metta Sutta in the morning, uh, yeah, it has Dittansha Anupagamma. Dittansha Anupagamma? Anyway, not uh, holding, not having false views. Well, how does it, oh, this is terrible. Not holding to false views? Uh? Okay, I better get this right, otherwise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Flawless and the fallless, exactly right there. So, um, yeah.
ติทันสานุปกรรมสิลาบาฮะโอเคยาย holding two false views not holding two false views not holding two fixed views yeah fixed views yeah and this one has not holding two false views but I think the So I think the truth is basically not holding to views. It's actually probably the exact translation. Detinsha anupagamma, not going up to a view, not holding to views at all, because you don't hold anymore, you don't grasp them anymore. Yeah? And so that's really, I think, the exact translation there, not holding to views. That does not mean you haven't got any views. It just means you don't grasp them. So uh, anyway, sometimes the Dhamma can be... Uh, a little bit hard to interpret and sometimes you need a kind of bit of training to know what's going on there because uh, it is not the immediate meaning is not always the correct one uh, and this is one example of that uh, usually it is fairly straightforward uh, but sometimes you have to be a little bit careful uh. okay so that is the uh, sutta on Malice, there wasn't much about malice there, mostly about views. I'm not sure these titles seem sometimes a little bit uh, not entirely fitting. I'm not sure who put those titles in there, but uh, anyway. So now let us go on to the next sutta. And uh, the next one I'm going to have a look at is quite a way further down um, on page 22 or something. Quarrels and disputes. Is that correct, page 22? Yeah, okay, great. <coughs> This is known as the Pali in the Kalaha Vivada Sutta. It's a very profound discourse. And uh, I'm not sure now exactly why I put it in there. I just kind of thought it was a cool, cool sutta, so I kind of whacked it in there to see what, <laughs> see what happens. But it's, uh, it's actually very, has many interesting points to it, but it's also very profound, especially towards the end. But uh, really, it is, this is in large part about, it has a kind of dependent origination theme about it. Uh, not exactly dependent origination, because dependent origination is really about rebirth, uh, but some of the mechanics of dependent origination are, are included here, uh, as we shall see as we go through it. Uh, and... Um, For that reason, it is always quite profound. There's a very famous book, or not very famous, a book written about this uh, by uh, uh, Venerable Nyanananda. This is um, uh, Katukurundu Nyanananda, famous Sri Lankan monk who passed away a couple of years ago. And it's called The Magic of the Mind, is the name of that book. And it's basically an extended exposition of this particular sutta. So if you want to have a look at that book, you can. It's probably a little bit hard going, but uh, uh, it might be interesting. Anyway, now you're going to get the, not the Katukurunda uh, Nanananda discussion, we're going to get the Norway Brahmali discussion instead. Um, so this is the, <laughs> so we'll see, see what happens as we go through this. Uh, so uh, this is uh, how it goes. Yeah? Where do quarrels and disputes come from? Uh, and lamentations and sorrow and stinginess. Uh, what of conceit and arrogance and slander too? Tell me, please, where do they come from? 
So here we have a, someone who is asking the Buddha, yeah? And this is the question he asks. It's kind of a complicated question, isn't it? Uh, he kind of puts all of these things together in there and asks, well, all of these things, uh, where do they come from? Uh, and it's a very interesting question, yeah? Why do we quarrel and dispute? Why do these things happen in the world? Uh, and uh, the, this is actually mentioned in uh, another sutta. This is the famous Sakka Panya Sutta, the questions of Sakka found in the Diga Nikaya number 21. Uh, questions of Sakka, the great Sakka, the lord of the, uh, the Devinda, the lord of the gods of the Tavatinsa heaven. And this is a discussion between this Deva, Sakka, and the Buddha. And it's a very, it's a really nice sutta. I, I don't think, I'm not sure if I've ever done it here before. I don't think I have, but I did it recently on another retreat. Uh, and that was a retreat that was titled, What Can We Learn from the, the Devas? So I took out all the suttas on Devas and Gods uh, and basically discovered you can't learn that much because the Devas are pretty much like us. Uh, but it's kind of still nice to kind of go through those suttas uh, with the Devas. Uh, you learn something about the heavenly realms, uh, uh, the, you know, so Sakka, he comes to the Buddha, and the, the, one of the nice things about how Sakka approaches the Buddha is it's very strange, uh, very kind of weird thing, yeah? uh, because Sakka is too shy to meet the Buddha. Yeah? He is the lord of the gods, but the lord of the god, he realizes he's nothing compared to the Buddha. So he's, really, he's a bit shy on approaching the Buddha. So he goes to this heavenly musician, the Gandabba. Gandabbas are the heavenly musicians. And so he says to this heavenly musician, uh, what's his name again, another? Panchasika, Panchasika, right. This, thank you for being here, Ananda. You come in very handy. Panchasika. So Panchasika is this heavenly musician, and then he says to Panchasika, please approach the Buddha so that I can have a chat with him. So Panchasika goes with his lute. He has this instrument, and he goes down with this little lute, and he approaches the cave where the Buddha is staying. And this... And this is this uh, cave. You can actually find this cave even, uh, even in the present day in Rajagaha. And so you, he goes, approaches this cave, uh, and he goes outside and he starts singing this song yeah, to kind of get the attention of the Buddha. And th this is kind of really strange because the song that he sings to the Buddha is a love song. <laughs> yeah, and it, it really is like a love song, really absolutely full on if you, if you read it. Uh, and he says things like, just, I, I love this maiden, yeah, this beautiful woman or whatever, just like the Arahants love the Dhamma, I love this maiden. Yeah. Isn't that kind of weird? I I just like the Arahants love the Dhamma, I love this maiden like the Arahants love the Dhamma. It's kind of really, really kind of strange. And so I don't know how that made its way into this collection of suttas, but anyway, it's there. Yeah, kind of very, very interesting here. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, he gets the Buddha's attention yeah, with these kind of strange verses. Uh, and the Buddha comes out, and what does the Buddha say? Uh, he says, oh, well composed. Yeah? Your, 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 your playing of the lute harmonizes very well with your verses or something to that effect. So the Buddha praises him, even though it is a very, very, very sensual song, actually, when you read it. So then he gets the Buddha's attention, and then Saka comes down, yeah, and they have a kind of conversation between Saka, the great god, and the Buddha, and it's very friendly in the beginning, yeah, how are you, or haven't you visited me before, oh yeah, you visited me there, and what, you know, and, and all of these kind of things that they talk about, and eventually it comes down to the proper conversation. Yeah. Maybe the Buddha realized that Saka is a bit nervous, so he wants to kind of calm him down, make him ready for the Dhamma. Yeah, you have to be at ease to hear the Dhamma. You can't be hungry. Your mind has to be in the right 
spot. And then when you hear the Dhamma, it is like when you hear the Dhamma in the suttas, yeah, and you hear a very powerful sutta, sometimes people become stream enters. That is only going to happen if your mind is in the right place. So it's very important to be relaxed and at ease. You are friendly. And so the Buddha is always friendly, welcoming, putting you at ease, yeah, so you can relax. And then Saka asked this beautiful question, and this question is very similar to this. Why is it that when everyone in the world wants to live at peace, everyone wants to be friendly, no one wants war and conflict and disharmony and these kind of things, why is it when everyone wants this, we can't do it? We still have war, we still have conflict, we still have arguments. It's a very good question, isn't it? How come we're not able to do what we really want to do? What is blocking us from being able to live, have an existence that we want to have? Instead of uh, uh, living at peace and harmony, we always go to war with each other. That is a very similar question that we are seeing here. And the answer also turns out to be very similar. So if you want to see this from a different angle, you can go to the Sakapanya Sutta, the Sakas questions in Diga Nikaya 21, and you can see this from a different angle. And you can go over and read the famous love poems by Panchasika and see, what you, see if you approve of those poems or not. It's the only such poem in the suttas as far as I'm aware. Anyway, so what does the Buddha say? And this is what he replies. He says... Quarrels and disputes come from what we hold dear, as do lamentations and sorrow, stinginess, conceit and arrogance. Quarrels and disputes are linked to stinginess, and when disputes have arisen, there is slander. So the root of quarrels and disputes and all the things, all the bad, these bad things in the world are from what we hold dear. Yeah, it's kind of one of those very interesting things. Deer here is Pia. Let's have a quick, see if I can. And uh, so by holding things dear in the world, all of these problems arise. Why is that? Well, this is very similar to what we find in dependent origination. Yeah, Dependent origination, I don't know how well you know your dependent origination, but you have... From feeling comes craving, from craving comes taking up or attachment. Yeah? This is upadana, and then from upadana comes your existence, the way how you exist according to those attachments. And upadana, taking things up, is very similar to the idea of having things dear. Those things that are dear to you are things you have taken up. You take them up, you hold on to them, you grasp them, you attach to them precisely because they are dear. There's almost no difference between the two. So this idea of things being dear to us, it's like we own them. It's things that we hold on to, grasp onto. That is why they are problematic. And from that, of course, comes all the arguments, all the disagreements. Because, again, we want the same things in the world. We're all trying to attach to similar kind of things, hold on to similar things, gain similar things. And then all of these things arise from that. Like the simile we saw before, with the bird and the piece of meat. Yeah? We're arguing, fighting over the things of the world. If you want to see an extended description of that, you can find that in Majjhima 13 and 14, the Maha and Chula Dukkha Kanda Suttas, the great mass of suffering um, in the um, Majjhima 13 and 14. Uh, 
So it comes from us, and this is kind of so counterintuitive. Yeah, what is dear? We want to have dear things in the world. There's another nice sutta about that uh, called the Piyajatika Sutta, which is in the Majjhima Nikaya 87. 87, I think. I think it's 87. Uh, yeah, <laughs> something like that. And this is the Piyajatika Sutta that means uh, that which is born from those who are dear. Uh, yeah. And there, the Buddha, very, again, very interesting, very similar to what we see here. In the Piyajatika Sutta, there is a, uh, uh, this man who is kind of um, uh, drunk or whatever, who is sorrowing because his son has passed away. And because his son has passed away, he goes out of his mind. Uh, yeah. You know what it can be like if someone is very, very dear to you and they die. Literally, it can make you crazy. Uh, this is so common. We see this sometimes in the world with people. Uh, and so he's kind of roaming around. He doesn't eat. He loses his appetite. He can't sleep. His, his whole life is destroyed because he loses someone who is so close to him. This happens a lot in the world. Yeah, there's a lot of very heavy sorrowing and grieving because of, other, because of people dying. And then he comes to the Buddha. Yeah, because he's roaming around. Somehow he ends up with the Buddha. And then the Buddha says to him, yeah, he hears his story and he says to him, well, that's the way it is, householder. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, and distress comes from those who are dear. And this man is outraged. Yeah? He's outraged because you don't want to hear that when you are in the middle, when you are in the grip of sorrow. You can hear it when you, your faculties are normal, before you are in the grip of sorrow and sadness. But the moment you are in the grip of those things, it's too late to hear that kind of message. Yeah? You don't want to hear it. So now is the time when we are kind of you know, okay the moment, then, then it's too late. But if you hear it now, then it may be useful when the sorrow actually happens. And then he gets really angry with the Buddha and he kind of roams around and he goes to these gamblers. He, he meets some gamblers. You remember the story? These gamblers down there. And then he's the gamblers and he says to the gamblers, yeah, the Buddha tells him in this, yeah, who is, you know, what do you think? And the gambler says, yeah, you are right. Yeah, the Buddha is foolish. Yeah, he shouldn't be saying these things, yeah. Everyone knows that uh, happiness comes from those who are dear, not sorrow, lamentation, and pain. Uh, even though he's out of his mind from sorrow, he can't see it. It's, kind of, it's very fascinating. Yeah. So this is a very profound thing. Yeah? The attachments in life, the things that we have dear to us, actually end up causing up a lot of suffering often, precisely because of the power of those attachments. So... Um, Quarrels and disputes come from what, we are, what is dear to us. If someone tries to take the things that are dear to you, or whatever, you get really upset about that. Lamentation, sorrow as well, of course, yeah, come from those who are dear when they die or whatever. Stinginess, you hold on to think this is mine. Conceit and arrogance, that is perhaps not as obvious, but... Uh, again, you know, we are conceited maybe because of what we own in the world. Uh, if you are a wealthy person, a person of high status or whatever, you are conceited about that because you consider that is what you own. This is your sense of self. This is your ego is involved with these things. And so you are conceited because of the things that are dear to you, the things you own in life. So and it is all linked to stinginess, yeah, because when you hold on to things, uh, then... These disputes come, and then when disputes have arisen, it leads to slander. 
The idea is just that when there is a dispute, you start saying bad things. Yeah, this is kind of what happens when you dispute. You slander other people, you backbite, you gossip, you kind of do all kind of bad things. So all of these things are involved with each other. It's kind of a very rich text, yeah, rich sutta. A lot of things happening here at the same time. So this is the first step that we see. Yeah? Once the moment you grasp onto things, the moments you attach to things in the world, it leads to all of these negative consequences, specifically quarrels and disputes. So dear, having things dear is the first problem. And then we go backwards. We follow the procedure of dependent origination, taking things back stage by stage. So where do what we hold dear in the world spring from? and the greed that are loose in the world. From where come the hopes and aims a person has for their next life? So now we take it one back. Why do we, why do we have things that we are dear, that are dear to us? Yeah, and the greeds in the world, uh, he uses the word lust, but I think greed is more appropriate in this context. Uh, and the hopes and the aims that you have for the next life. This is also about... Uh, Greed for the future, if you wish. And the Buddha replies, What we hold dear in the world springs from desire, as do the greed that are loose in the world. From there spring the hopes and aims that the person has for the next life. Yeah, when, when you desire things, that's when we attach in the world. Tanha pachaya upadana, independent origination, from the craving, from the desire, you attach to things, and then the moment you attach to them, you have things that are dear to you and not dear to you, and all of these kind of things. And from those desires, yeah, come of course also the hopes and the aims for the future. Yeah, if you have an idea of a future life, you want to be, you want to go into a nice place in the future. Obviously, who wants to go to a miserable place? So you, you, know, you, you are aiming for that. That comes from these desires that we have in the world. So this is kind of the basic idea of dependent origination. Desire leads to holding on, to grasping things. Yeah? And we grasp so many different kinds of things. It's not just the relationships and material things, but we grasp views, we grasp all kinds of... Um, vows, we grasp precepts, we grasp religion, we hold on to Buddhism for dear life, yeah, because we find meaning in Buddhism. And it's good to hold on to Buddhism a little bit, but don't hold it too hard, because then it leads to suffering again. So desire leads to these things. And then we go backwards, yeah, uh, backwards uh, further. And where does desire in the world spring from? And judgments too, where do they come from? and anger, lies, and doubt, and other things spoken of by the ascetic. <laughs> it's a very loose question. Where do all these things spoken by the ascetic come from? <laughs> what they call pleasure and pain in the world, yeah, or the pleasant and unpleasant, based on that, desire comes about. Seeing the appearance and disappearance of form, or the existence or non-existence of forms, a person forms judgments in the world. Yeah, pain and pleasure. So uh, these are here, okay, satang and asatang. So it's closely related to the idea of feelings. Yeah, things feel good and feel bad. 
And because this is the nature of being of existing, things are either good or bad to us. We make a value judgment. We want to, we don't actually need to make a value judgment. It's obvious that what is pleasant is good and what is unpleasant is not good. It's kind of by definition. So um, because there is this experience in the world, obviously desire will arise. That's the way things are, yeah? So the problem is that we feel pleasure and, and displeasure in the world. Uh, it's kind of one of the obvious parts of dependent origination. Yeah? Seeing appearance and disappearance of forms, a person for, forms judgment in the world. Uh, yeah? So we, it, is, um, it is really based on uh, what, when we look at the world, those things that kind of seem reliable to us, the things that kind of don't, are not very impermanent, we try to hold on to things that we regard as more permanent and satisfactory and reliable, and that's where we make judgments. Yeah, we hold on to those things that are suitable and useful for the long run. I think it just means something fairly straightforward like that. So then we make judgments about things, yeah? judgments about what we should pursue, what we should not pursue. Vinicaya is the Pali word. It means like making a decision about things. Yeah? This is good, this is bad. And then kind of desires arising from that. The things that are good, we have, are pleasant to us. The things that are unreliable are unpleasant. And then desires and attachments arise out of all of these things. It's not entirely clear to me exactly what is meant there, but something around that, something like that. Anger, lies, and doubt, these things too yeah, exist when that pair is present. The pair here uh, is, again, not entirely clear, pleasure and pain, basically. And uh, so all of these things come around because of pleasure and pain. Yeah, you, we are angry about things because of displeasure, we lie about things to get our way. We have doubt about things. We don't really know what is good and what is bad when we experience pleasure in the world. The pleasure can distort our ideas about what is good and what is bad. And so we have doubt and uncertainty about things. And one who has doubt should train in the path of knowledge. It is from knowledge that the ascetic, this is the Buddha, speaks of these things. Yeah, the um, idea of doubt in Buddhism, vichikicca, here is actually a slightly different word, here is, here is katankata. Katankata literally means asking how, but vichikicca is one of the five uh, hindrances. These are just synonymous with each other. And uh, so the Buddha says, well, what is doubt in the five hindrances? And the doubt is uncertainty about what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Yeah, when you look in your mind and you... Sometimes maybe your meditation is stagnating a little bit. Why is your meditation stagnating? Why do you reach a kind of plateau and it doesn't go any deeper? You know, meditation goes well and it kind of, you kind of becomes peaceful and it kind of plateaus and it doesn't really go any deeper. And then it kind of peters out again. And meditation always sometimes has this kind of sequence. It depends, not, not always, but this is kind of a common, quite a common experience for meditation. And uh, the reason why it doesn't go deeper uh, is because you're not really clear about what is wholesome and unwholesome. There's some defilement there. There's some attachment there that stops the meditation from going deeper. And this is part of the idea of seeing clearly or vipassana or insight is to understand the things that block you from going deeper. But you have doubt. You don't really know. You can't see clearly. I feel peaceful. Everything is great. What could the hindrance possibly be? Well, there is a hindrance there. 
It's just hard to see, that's all. And that's where we need to investigate. That's where the idea of Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of the qualities of the mind, where that comes in. That's where the idea of understanding the five hindrances come in. Yeah? We need to try to understand what is going on. You can give some general ideas. The general idea is that you're holding on to something. Yeah? The body or the five senses or something like that. Or you haven't developed enough joy or whatever. So you can give some general ideas. But if you really want to make progress, it's better to see exactly what is going on with you. Then you can overcome those obstacles. So this is the doubt, yeah? And that doubt, says the Buddha here, is overcome by knowledge, by understanding, by insight into what is going on, understanding your experience. This is how doubt is overcome uh, as one of the five hindrances. So, um, yeah, so that then the questioning goes on, yeah? Uh, where do pleasure and pain spring from? Yeah, where does the pleasant and the unpleasant spring from? When what is absent, do these things not occur? Yeah, so this, this, fell, this person, whoever that is, who is asking these questions is really kind of digging deep, yeah? This is not the kind of ordinary question people would ask. Where does pleasure and pain come from? When what is absent, do these things not occur? It's kind of uh, very profound. And also on the topic of appearance and disappearance, uh, tell me where they spring from. And the Buddha replies, pleasure and pain spring from contact. When contact is absent, they do not occur. And on the topic of appearance and disappearance, uh, I tell, tell you they spring also from there, from contact. So, um, what does this mean? And contact is a strange kind of Pali word. The Pali word is pasa. Yeah? And uh, contact basically just means that we experience things. I, another translation of pasa is just experience. Yeah? And the idea in uh, the suttas is that when you have an eye and there are forms, and then the eye consciousness arises in dependence of those things. At that moment, there is contact. And contact is just the beginning of that experience. Yeah? It's like you contact the world through the eye. So contact, the word contact is a little bit sort of uh, kind of hard to grow, a little bit philosophical maybe. Yeah? But you can just think of it as, a, as experience or the beginning of experience. Yeah? You experience things when the eye and the form come together and experience happens. And when there is experience, then there is the pleasant and the unpleasant. It all arises, comes from that. So contact is the cause. Yeah? When we contact the world, then there is experience and, or pleasure and pain. When we don't contact the world, there is no pleasure and pain. So if you want to get rid of pleasure and pain, you have to get rid of contact, which is experience. You have to stop experience. This is what this is saying. Yeah? This is kind of, this is the Dhamma, why the Dhamma is so profound, yeah? Because we are talking about things that most people have no, can't, can't even make sense of. Huh? The topic of appearance and disappearance, uh, I tell you, uh, they also spring from contact. Yeah, we're talking about the appearance and disappearance of form, yeah? and uh, how these come about, or their existence and non-existence, another way of thinking about it, uh, it comes from contact, yeah? Because forms really is just another way, another aspect of experience itself. 
experience and for form comes through that whole uh, apparatus of the f six senses or the five senses, uh, that from that we actually experience anything at all, including forms. Okay, so um, now uh, the questioning carries on, yeah? And the next time it moves on, where does contact come from? Uh, and the answer that contact comes from name and form. And that may seem very strange to you, but this is another aspect of dependent origination. And then they ask, where does name and form come, form come from? And it comes from all these kind of the perceptions that we have, distorted perceptions and all of these kind of things. But I want to stop there because this last part of the sutta is very profound. And if I start to get into that in the last minute that we have, then we're going to get sidetracked. Uh, but um, uh, the, uh, the final thing here, what we come down to at the very end, gives kind of the root problem of the round of existence. Uh, yeah? The final kind of uh, distortion of our mind that kind of makes us see the world in the wrong way. And that is the root problem that leads to all of these kind of things, that leads to disputes and problems in the world. And this is what we're going to get back to, and we'll come back to that tomorrow morning. Uh, hopefully, if we are still alive, we'll come back to that tomorrow morning. Yeah. <laughs> okay, everyone, so that's it for now. So uh, please have a nice afternoon, and we'll come back again at 7 o'clock this evening. Yeah. <laughs>